Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. My name is Steve House, and I will be your host today with my good friend, Josh Wharton. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Thanks for having me, Steve. So you are on a trip with your wife and daughter. Tell us a little bit about that and the significance of it and where we are. Uh, we're sort of on our annual European sport climbing slash cultural trip. Uh, we're in Briançon, France. It's been lovely. We've been, we spent a couple days in Paris at the start of the trip and then in sport climbing and touring around and enjoying ourselves. Do you always do a trip with We've, your family? Yeah, we usually try to do one every year. And um, my, I think it's a really good way for my daughter, Hera, to get some cultural experience and see the world a little bit. And wife and I get, love to travel as well. So, Where has Hera been so far? She has been to Europe uh, seven times in her nine-year-old life. <laughs> How many times were you in Europe when you were nine? Uh, zero. Zero. Yeah, me too. Zero. zero. Yeah. <laughs> zero. <laughs> I'm not sure that she knows how good she has it. Uh, so, um, but yeah, she's been to uh, Sicily, Spain a few times, various places, uh, UK, Sardinia, and now France. Nice. What's next for her? I actually think that next summer we might go to Peru. Wow. That's a big step up from France. Peru. Yeah, I feel like she has gotten an experience of seeing the sort of like Disneyland vacation cultural tour. So I'd love for her to go to a place that has some real poverty and is a little harder around the edges. And I feel like she's finally getting old enough that that might be a worthwhile experience for her. So um, and also the mountains in Peru are sort of benign and kind also mm. as well. So it seems like a good mix of that. Um, good mountains good weather yet a little different cultural yeah still in the developing world and you know she'll see i mean going to lima in the peruvian winter feels a little apocalyptic it's so cloudy and dusty and dirty and third world bits of it and Mm. so i just think that would be a cool growth experience to to share with her and show her that it's not all like you know, sugar plums and lollipops everywhere. <laughs> Lemonade springs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's zoom out just a little bit. And I want to frame you up in your career as a climber and a little bit of our relationship as well. You know, tell me a little bit about, you know, what is important to you as a climber in your own words? Yeah, so I think... Um, my climbing experience is really diverse. Maybe the story of my climbing is that there is no one story. I've kind of like dabbled in all the genres, um, and found them all rewarding in their own way. Uh, and since I started climbing 25 years ago now, I always kind of wanted to be the best climber I could be, but in every genre of climbing, like to to, my, to me, the best climber was somebody who could do everything well. Like you could put them at the base of any pitch and they could get the rope up with some style. And that's uh, kind of where I, what I've tried to do with my climbing and where I've gone into a whole bunch of different genres and 
all sorts of different when things. When you say genre, what do you mean? Well, I mean like alpinism, sport climbing, bouldering, trad climbing, a bit of everything. Yeah. Essentially. Okay. Yeah. Bouldering and alpinism are pretty 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 opposite. <laughs> Unless you boulder in Rocky Mountain National Park, in which case they might have a lot of similarities. Yeah, fair. But you know, one thing I've learned through doing this for the years is that like the genres really kind of are connected in lots of ways. Like you might say alpinism is way different than bouldering, but a lot of times the cruxes of big alpine routes are kind of like boulder problems. There'll be some tiny steep wall that you need to figure out how to get over on this giant mountain and yeah. it'll be a boulder problem. Yeah. yeah, the whole route comes down to 15 feet of yeah. climbing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Mm -hmm. Very true. So you've been climbing for 25 years. You're roughly early 40s now. Mm -hmm. So where has climbing taken you so far on this on this journey? And uh, what, what are some of those experiences that stick out in your mind for you as, as meaningful or or personally rewarding or personally terrifying or however you <laughs> want to categorize that. Yeah. I have a tendency to get excited about a place and then return to that place over and over again. Cause I feel like to get some level of mastery over a place, you have to really know it. Um, so, you know, those places for me through the years have been the Black Canyon in Colorado. That was going to be my first uh, guess. <laughs> yeah, tons of times there. And then um, Patagonia is a place I spent a lot of time. And then also Pakistan is a place where I've been on a bunch of trips, although I wouldn't say I really mastered that one, although I did go there quite a lot. Um, uh, it's a big place, hard to master. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, dabbled in other places like the Canadian Rockies and you know, other climbing areas, Peru and places like that. Yeah. So tell me about what the climbing is like in the Black Canyon. If for the audience that wouldn't be familiar, what does that mean to you with climbing the Black? Yeah, the Black is a deep gorge in southwest Colorado, cliffs from maybe a thousand feet to two thousand feet tall. And you walk down to the base of the route and then you climb out. Um and as a result, it's sort of committing because there aren't a lot of fixed anchors. So you can't just repel from the root very easily. The root finding is kind of tricky because there's lots of weird features. It's known for having some loose rock. Um, so in some ways, it kind of mimics alpine climbing because you, you, know, you have to have good root finding skills. You have to deal with funky protection. You're often hot or cold. You know, it's just a... It's kind of an adventurous place to go rock climbing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. But it's it's sort of a smaller version of big wall free climbing, I would say. Yeah. But with an alpine flavor. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I would say so. Okay. Yeah. And I had a really cool, interesting relationship with the Black Canyon, the way that I found it, because the very first trip I did to Pakistan was with Mike Pennings and Johnny Cop. And I was 19 like total newbie. We went to the Trango Valley. I couldn't, this is pre 9-11. I couldn't probably have picked Pakistan out of a map before we left. Went there. Wait, 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 wait. So, okay, you went there, but why did you go, like, how did you meet Johnny and Mike? I, and how did it end up yeah. that you were 19 years old? <laughs> I also went to Pakistan when I was 19. I think uh -huh. that's not 
that's one of the things that we share and it's mm -hmm. also a little bit unusual so i want to hear how that came to be yeah so that came to be because my good buddy brian mcmahon that i was climbing with at the time was roommates with johnny cobb okay and a couple of other guys uh, i didn't make that connection yeah. between johnny and brian brian okay. yeah um, we were all students at CU, but they were a few years older than me. Johnny was a senior. I Shout think. out to Brian because he listens to our podcast. Okay. So. All right. Hey, Brian. Um, and so Johnny asked Brian if he wanted to go. Brian asked me because I was his primary client partner. And I said, hell yeah, I'll go. Even though I have no idea, you know, <laughs> what I was in for. <laughs> we climbed the diamond a couple of times. We felt like we were <laughs> ready for Pakistan. Know, yeah. Uh, it was just a hilarious experience because we of course thought we were going on an expedition so i took like all my heaviest stuff i had one of those columbia jackets it's like the three-in-one that you zip together with like a fleece and then a puffy and a layer and like plastic boots that i bought at the sports recycler and just random stuff heavy like a 80 liter backpack and johnny and mikey kind of just blew us away because they climbed like a new route on Shipton, or they repeated a route on Shipton Spire, new routes on Cats here, new routes on Hanablock, and Brian and I did some little things, but we're, I was just like, wow, that looks amazing and fun. And that really changed the course of my life. And at the, the, how this ties back to the Black Canyon is that we had to go home early to start school again. And Mikey said, go into the garage and you'll find my Black Canyon binder there. And you can make a photocopy of it, and you guys should go climbing in black. And that's how I started that relationship. Canyon. For for those that really want to go down in the weeds and have a little obscure reference, there's a really iconic cover of the American Alpine Journal from that year. I believe it's Mike on the top of Cats here, or one of those routes that they did, and he's and he's wearing like. I don't know what he's wearing, like sweatpants, and it, and he has no shirt on. He's taken his shirt off, and it's like kind of tucked into the back of his harness or something. Mm -hmm. And you know, I remember seeing that. And this is the American Alpine Journal, right? Like mm -hmm. the, the and and you and these guys went climbing in the Karakoram, and there's this picture of this dude with like he's not wearing a helmet. <laughs> he's just got like a harness, some like. <laughs> <laughs> track pants, a t-shirt sort of uh -huh. stuck in his hardest like pistol Barolo style and and he's like Johnny, you know, my pennings on top of a new route, blah 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 blah. And I was just like, what? Yeah. Yeah. That was the thing. And as a young college kid and a new climber, I was completely inspired by that. Like it just seemed like they were having a lot of fun. They were badass climbers. They would do things like take flutes up the route, you know. And bivy an extra night just because it was enjoyable and pretty up there. And I was just like wanted to do that and thought that was inspiring. And it seemed like the place to do it and to get that good was the black, according to Mike and Johnny. Well, I think that they uh, they had mm -hmm. a good idea about yeah. what worked because it obviously worked for them. Yeah. Those two both spent a lot of time down there. Mm -hmm. And at the time, there was this real like narrative that, you know, when is Yosemite going to get taken to the big mountains? And this idea that Yosemite climbing would somehow transfer to places like yeah. the Karakoram and Trango. That, that had been going on for decades yeah. already, right? And the reality was that like, well, there's not two bolt anchors up all the routes in the Trango Valley the way that there are two bolt anchors up 
the nose. So like all the speed climbing tactics and all the stuff that people were practicing in Yosemite in a place with great weather and good rock and all those things weren't really transferring in the same way that the Black Canyon transferred to a place like Patagonia or to Pakistan. How many people do you think made that connection? Um, not a lot, actually. Yeah. yeah. Not a lot. Um, because there's like something a little bit masochistic about climbing the black too. So. And, and there's a, can I just say that I think at that time in particular, and to a certain extent today, people didn't talk about climbing the black. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like fight club. Yeah. Uh -huh. Do not talk about fight uh -huh. club. First rule of fight club, don't talk about fight yeah. club. And the first rule of climbing the black Canyon, don't talk about climbing the black Canyon. You mm -hmm. just kind of go do it. And it's kind of on the down low. And, mm -hmm. you know, now there's guidebooks and all this, but before there weren't even guidebooks mm -hmm. there was, and then for a while there was one guidebook that was really bad and no topos, just like yeah. old school descriptions, mm -hmm. some bad photos with some big wide lines drawn up some really big faces. So, you know, if you, what, how much of that kind of, I almost think of that as like the pirate mentality of just kind of mm -hmm. flying under the radar of conventional wisdom, but yet figuring out something really important. Mm-hmm that what Johnny and, and Mike were about back then or am I am I glorifying it? Yeah, I mean I don't think they would have put it in those terms. I think they just enjoyed climbing the black and it just, you know, so happened that the skills transferred very, very well um in that mentality. And I just think the mentality of the sorts of people who enjoy climbing the black, if you enjoy that kind of adventure, but also you have to be a pretty high level rock climber for the harder mm -hmm. roots, you know that just transferred really well to what, you know, things like Trango Valley. Right. Right. So you, so you're 19, you come back, you've got the binder, you and Brian <laughs> had, or you've got a copy of the binder, which at that time was like gold, right? Like I mean, mm -hmm. that wasn't, that yeah. information was not easy to come by. Yeah. And so you guys, then what happens? Don't take me through. So we have a few days before semester starts so we get in the car and we drive to the black in august <laughs> <laughs> having no clue how hot it is in the black in the summer and we climb the scenic cruise Whew. with a shared half liter nalgene oh my god <laughs> just parched out of our minds luckily we're relatively fit and decent climbers so we don't die up there if heat stroke and get it done. But that was a real wake up call to like, oh yeah, you can have some suffering and some adventures here. Yeah. And for those that aren't aware, the scenic cruise is, I would say, the classic intro route. Yeah. It's sort of like the classic 510 plus. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when I lived in Southwest Colorado and people came and visited me and wanted to go climbing the black, that's why it would take them mm -hmm. because it is an amazing route, mm -hmm. honestly. Like, yeah. it's, it's great climbing, mm -hmm. but it is also facing due south yeah <laughs> and even on a cold day it's hot up uh -huh. there. yeah and it's a route that gets like underestimated too right. you know you think oh it's a 10 plus but it's actually like a fair bit of climbing on it wandering route climb. you know it's not just a straightforward romp no you know no those pitches are sustained yeah 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 wow okay so now you guys have have climbed a, a, a starter test piece, I would call it, mm -hmm. in the black. And 
And then from there, I just started going to the block on a regular basis and just sort of had a unset goal of doing all the routes. Yeah. And that's how I was with many places where I climbed, you know, in college, I climbed in Eldo a lot and I just wanted to do all the routes, do them all. Um, for no other good reason, really, than just... Did you care about, like, all the five-star routes, or did you also care about all the no, routes I, with negative stars? I would do the negative star ones, too. For me, it was often, I, you know, I'd, I'd learned to climb in a really traditional way and been influenced by my dad, who was a climber in the 50s and 60s, so it was a very, like, work your way to the grades. So, you know, it was like, I want to do every 510 in Eldo, and then it was, I want to do every 511, and I would really go through them very systematically, trying to do a new one every time I went out. That's interesting because that's that was what I was in inoculated with as well. Like, you know, you you can't be you can't try five eleven routes until you've done like all the five tens. Mm-hmm. And now I feel like there's this cultural norm where we encourage people to just skip right through to whatever they're natural limit at that moment is and not do all that work to kind of get there yeah. and i feel like something important is lost in that kind of shortening of the apprenticeship for sure i think um i feel very fortunate that i took that approach because i got to have so many experiences and go climb so many routes that I might not have done today had I been a climber. There are like lots of cool routes I went and did. There were great trips with friends or to really beautiful places or had something, some learning experience or growth experience from them that I think a lot of younger climbers in today's climbing culture miss out on because they're just jumping to the hard thing. Um, and that's changed a lot. Um, I think that it held me back physically and technically to some degree. Um, because I spent way too much time, you know, getting my head around 510 where I could have been climbing harder or whatever, you know, whatever it was at the time. I mean, arguably you could have been doing both, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do think that that's something that's changed a lot culturally. And I actually think about it quite a bit in the front range because there's all this talk about how standards have risen, um, in climbing in general. And I'm not really totally sure that they have risen. I just think it's that people are willing to like go try something much, much harder and spend a whole bunch more time working at that one specific like pinnacle achievement thing than they used to be in climbing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your your father's, let's say, upbringing in climbing and how that affected you. Um. So my dad grew up in uh, Liverpool, England. Um, Very traditional. Yeah. And um, had two parents who were into sort of hill walking and mountaineering and a bit of rock climbing. So I guess my grandparents were climbing. I have my grandfather's old climbing journal, which has like his list of climbs and some topos and their roots from the 30s and 40s. Um, And... My dad's godfather growing up was a guy named Scotty Guire who owned a guide service in Wales. So my dad would go up and work in the summers for his godfather, guiding through his teenage years. Um, And my dad went to eventually move to the States to go to school at Princeton 
when he was 18 and wound up just immigrating to the U.S., but he climbed a lot of the Schwangunks in like late 50s, early 60s, mm-hmm. and then um, got married, had a couple of kids. I've had two half-brothers that are much older than me, and uh, kind of just fell out of climbing, you know, um, stepped away from it, but then would take me kind of once a year. Basically, we go do some like super easy five two, and actually, like, we went on a trip to Wales when I was a kid, and we climbed some really easy easy routes when I was maybe ten or eleven. Um, so that was kind of my influence from him was very old school. Mm-hmm. And those that aren't familiar with the culture, and I'm speaking somewhat out of turn here as a non-British <laughs> uh, citizen, but I would say that the having climbed in the UK and especially in Scotland, that there is a a heavy emphasis on what I would call traditional climbing values of, you know, trad climbing in the sense of, you know, placing your own gear, traditional in the sense of, you know, you, you don't leave anything, you know, you, 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 it's a kind of a leave no, the original leave no trace ethic. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, they used to have fights about, chalk use i remember Mm -hmm. back in the day right so that was even considered unethical let alone Mm -hmm. sticky rubber boots and all these other other things and i think that that's that still permeates the the culture there Mm -hmm. i would say and so i can imagine your dad climbing in the 50s and 60s and in wales which you know apparently have never been that has amazing rock climbing Mm -hmm. and is also very traditional uh, he must have. And how did he pass that along to you in terms of the values? I mean, he took you climbing, introduced it. I know that that wasn't originally your love as a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that happen? Like, how did he, how did you aspire to be more of a, let's say, traditionalist in an era? I mean, you're just, you're about 10 years younger than I am. So, you know, by the time you were 18, sport climbing was like a real thing in the United States. You could have easily gone much more in that direction, given your age. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I grew up when I first started climbing on my own, it was in New Hampshire and New England. Mm. And so there wasn't really that much access to sport climbing. Yeah. And it was top roping mostly with my friends at small crags, like the Tuckaway and this cliff called tumble down Dick near the school that I went to. Mm. Um, my dad actually didn't have a lot of influence on my climbing ethics and things like that. Okay. What he really had more of an influence was like a conservative approach to it. Okay. I remember my dad telling me that his entire climbing career, which I guess probably was only like 20 years from when he was a kid until he was 30 or something, he fell twice. So if I would come home and be like, oh, we tried this hard route and we fell off. He would say things like, mm, maybe you should try something easier. Like he came from this school of like, you don't fall. You're very much within your abilities. Yeah. Bowling on a bite around your waist. Yeah. Kind of thing. So he just wasn't like up to speed on modern climbing and the approach to it really at all. Mm-hmm. Even though he looked at climbing magazines and stuff. Mm-hmm. So he didn't really like influence me in terms of ethics or anything. He just sort of guided me down this conservative path and that whole like tick all the grade until you move up mentality and yeah but so i'd like to kind of pull together that thread that we sort of started with your first trip to pakistan 
the Black Canyon and what we began with. Here we are in France. We just went to a beautiful crag today. Mm -hmm. uh, came back, had an amazing meal. You know, you're here with your wife and, and nine-year-old daughter. How does that? Where's the? How does that? How do you close that that loop? I mean, I know I'm I'm. It's a twenty-year loop, right? But so. Yeah. What what is the thread here? What is the what is uh, what is the what is the constant for you? I don't know that there has been a a real constant other than that. Like the bottom line is that I've just really loved climbing in all its way and whatever form it takes. I really love it. Mm -hmm. um, and you know the reason we're here sport climbing is because sport climbing has become kind of like I feel like once you have all the experience and have all the sort of like technical skills with gear and footwork and all those things you build through the years with all that stuff I was talking about doing every 510, doing every 511, then really like it comes down to, at least for me, because I feel like I've always been pretty good mentally, that it comes down to a lot of like physical stuff. So now like I spend 90% of my time sport climbing and that feeds my other climbing and I can translate that to things like hard alpinism or dry tooling or mixed climbing. And so I spent a lot of my time doing that and it's safe and it's fun and you know, all those and you things. You could do it with your family in France. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I think yeah. that that's a, a great answer. One of the, one of the things that I interact with, you know, are uphill athletes all the time. And one of the constants that I see with them is this, it would answer in that same exact way. They would just say, I just love it. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't really particularly matter which genre or whether we're talking about a high altitude mountaineering trip or, you know, uh, an ultra or something, but you know, they, they have, would all have a, think a similar answer. So I think that's very relatable and universal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that makes sense. So once you have all of those, all of the experience let's just i think that that's the best thing the, the judgment mm -hmm. you have the judgment to make the right decisions what then your limiting factor always comes down to your technical limits mm -hmm. because that's what you can as long as it's safe you can always push right and i think you yeah all that experience gives you a time to be able to judge you know whether it's perceived danger or actual danger um, and then I also think pushing, having a high technical level, and this, I think is something that people don't always recognize, gives you some margin just in the same way that, you know, your climbing skill really is your best piece of protection Absolutely, yeah. in a lot of ways. So, you know, if you climb 513, 510 with poor protection is not going to feel as dangerous or as intense as it would if you are only a five, solid 511 climber. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. And I think that one of the things that I also take from this is the difference between, I think in alpinism, sometimes the, the pushing alpinism forward, let's say, are trying hard, hard routes in the big mountains the technical piece is sometimes confused with the risk piece. Mm -hmm. And I've always made, a, in my mind, for myself, a real distinction. Like, 
risk tolerance is not something you can really push, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Like, especially with objective hazard with like, I don't know, a CERAC or bad weather or whatever, like something that's out of your control. That's just something you have to know and understand and be able to have a conversation about with yourself and with your partner as to where you're mm-hmm. kind of comfortable and what is acceptable and what is not. But the technical piece is long, you know, again, like, I mean, this goes back for me to my first climbing experience when I was 24, 25 with, uh, 25 with Alex Lowe. The first time I saw somebody do really hard ground up trad mixed climbing and his approach you know, when I would look at this, I'd just be like, kind of like, Jesus, dude, like, what are you, what are you, what are you going to, what are you doing? Like, what are you, you know, and he'd just be like, well, I'll figure it out once I get up there. But as long as I can get gear in mm-hmm. and I'm safe, it's all good. Yeah. I mean, of course he sent it too. So that, that yeah. in terms of like what you're saying, he was yeah. strong enough and he mm-hmm. was, you know, he was on sighting, you know, trad 12 5 12 plus at the same time back then yeah and we're you know climbing stuff that is probably mixed but more on like a, a 510 maybe easy 511 mm-hmm. you know equivalence level so yeah that 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 is interesting how do you think about that and how do you think about i know you just after a a bit of a quest mm-hmm. i want to talk about this that i was played some tiny role in mm-hmm. with you just recently or a year ago climbed a route on jirishanka in peru and that was a multi-year project mm-hmm. and a big alpine route technical climbing on a big mountain you know six thousand meters i don't remember the exact mm-hmm. elevation uh, how does that, how does something like that fit into being a dad and husband and how does that Yeah, work? for me, um, Jiroshanka in a lot of ways was super attractive because it worked as a family guy and a dad. Um, the mountain, and again, this is somewhat a matter of opinion, but from my mind compared to some other things I tried or been a part of, like felt pretty objectively safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it also had, you know, it checked all the boxes of like being relatively easy to get there, not being so high that you had to spend a lot of time acclimatizing, having supposedly good weather. Although as you know, we didn't have good weather on our trip. Um, and, uh, so that worked well as a, as a dad, um, and was kind of how I went to that mountain in the first place and then kept going back and then kind of got drawn in by it because after a trip realized that it was had really cool high-end climbing in every genre which made it unique and kind of fit my what i you know it said before what i you know espouse to or like aspire to which is to be the best climber i can in every genre and it really had that in a lot of ways and so that's Mm -hmm. why i found it so attractive Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and for those of you that that don't know Jerry Shanka is a mountain in the Cordillera Waiwash region of Peru. How high is it, Josh? 6,100 meters. 6,100 meters, so roughly 20,000 feet, mm-hmm. just a touch lower than Denali. But the base, of course, is, is much higher and in a meadow instead yeah. <laughs> of a glacier. Yeah. Um, and that's also one of the, the things that sold me on it when you invited me to come along on that trip when which year was that i don't remember 2018 yeah 2018 that uh 
it is it is pretty safe. You're you know climbing a pretty steep rock wall for a good chunk of it mm-hmm. at the bottom. There's no there's I guess always loose rock. There's maybe some icicles, but icicles are not such a you know tend to break up into millions of shards. They're mm-hmm. not as dangerous. But uh, yeah, that definitely and climbing with another dad as a father myself, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Like it was like, okay, yeah, like mm-hmm. this is going to be, we're going to keep this reasonable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a good, yeah. It's funny how that dad piece puts you, puts your risk tolerance a little bit in context as well. It has for me. I mean, for me, it actually has felt more like age, but I, you know, I guess it's also being a dad too. But, um, and I, I think that there was a time, um, you know, probably in my early twenties where I would have confused badass climbing with objectively dangerous climbing or conflated the two. Yeah. You know? Sure. Um, and through the years of doing it, I've sort of realized that that's not the case. Um, that, you know, just taking huge risk doesn't necessarily make the climbing badass. It just makes it dumbass. Really. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I've, I've often maintained that there's, there's enough amazing routes to do that are not objectively hazard hazardous mm-hmm. that you can just sort of skip the ones that there are some really cool routes that people have done that have tremendous objective hazard, but it's just like, eh, like why? Like, yeah. you know, there's, there's plenty of other things to do. Mm-hmm. Like if you're, if you're, you know, I think one of the things that I want to ask you about is I want to go back to the black Canyon kind of era. If we, if we can, and talk about how you kind of how you kind of just put it together to you know learn how to do all of these things and live a life and feed yourself and you know have a relationship and mm-hmm. you know there's there's it's one thing there's plenty of i think there's a well-worn path to excellence that you know, I would say that I ascribe to or, or pres- prescribe to for many years was like, just don't do anything else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just make it, just, just deprioritize everything else and only have one priority mm-hmm. and laser focus on that. And of course, I mean, if, if you do that and you're not good at it, well, then, <laughs> yeah. you know, then that's another problem. But, mm-hmm. you know, you've, you've sort of been able to balance a lot of different things. And I think that that's, you know, really interesting. Why don't you? Mm-hmm. What do you have to say? What do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, that's a tough question. I, I um, what was sure. it like being Josh in your late twenties, for example? Like, just paint us a picture of a a month in the life or so. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't I have to said, be all green. Yeah. And pretty. So, yeah. No, it wasn't all green and pretty. I suppose. Um, like injuries were always tough for me, mm. you know, cause they derail, but I was like, uh, you know, and still am to a large degree, but of course it's been tempered by fatherhood and age and all those things, an obsessed climber. Mm. So I always had the next trip I was planning for and trying to figure out how to come up with the money to make it happen. Um, I fell into climbing full time and professionally although at the start you could say it was like extremely semi-professionally financially um really through luck in a lot of ways i went on my second or third trip 
I guess it was my third trip to the to the Trango Valley was with Kelly Cordes. And we climbed a big route on Great Trango Tower. Um, and 2004. 2004, yep. And uh, Kelly's a great storyteller and came back and told lots of great stories about that adventure. And it had all sorts of cool things like we ran out of water and went 48 hours or went out of fuel and went 48 hours without water and did some run out climbing at altitude and things like that. And I got a call from Mark Sinnott after that trip asking me to be on the North Face team. And at the time I was like piecing it together, like feeding myself, like building fences part-time. I just graduated college. My kind of my college slush fund had run out. I had like, you know, it's like living on 500 bucks a month kind of thing, just getting by. And Mark was like, oh, we'll give you $8,000 a year. And I was like, holy shit, $8,000. Yes. But I didn't, I also knew that the North Face was sort of like, these production things like you'd go and do photo shoots and you'd climb with other people on the North Face team who I didn't necessarily know or wasn't friends with. And I was very like goal driven and ambitious with my climbing at the time. So I didn't want to do that. And so I was getting some ropes and some clothing and stuff from the guy at the moot um, in Vermont. And I called him up and I said, Hey, I don't really want to do this, but he's going to offer me $8,000. And he said, I'll match that. And that was like the start of, full-time quote-unquote professional climbing for me um and from there you know just chasing the climbing that interested me and going after the things that i was excited about and psyched about at the time you know whether they were rock climbs or alpine climbs or whatever and that's kind of how it's been ever since so so many uh threads i want to pull on here i want to go back to the route on great trango and hear a little bit about that how did that just what is what is first of all what is great trango where is it uh how did this route come to be i mean i know what i've been there i know what it looks like but paint a little bit of a picture for me so very first trip to the trango valley that i was talking about earlier with mikey and johnny yeah um timmy o'neill and miles smart were there and they were trying to climb this huge unclimbed ridge on great trango that was maybe seven to eight thousand vertical feet of rock climbing Great Trango is a 6,000 meter rock spire. Um, it's right next to the iconic nameless tower in the Trango Valley. Um, they had gotten quite high on it, had some poor weather, had to repel. Their repel devices were paper thin because they'd repelled in, in this big storm. I remember eyes, my eyes were like saucers hearing about their experience at the time. Wait, why were their repel devices paper thin? Because like all the friction from their dirty ropes and wet ropes. Um, sort of wore out the wore out the repel devices. I mean, they did something like seventy repels to get down from their high point in a storm. <laughs> wow. Um, some Spanish guys had climbed high on this ridge, so there were some anchors and bolts and things. That's how Miles and Timmy had managed to get down. I had a pretty successful trip there with Brian McMahon in two thousand two. I guess it was summer two thousand two. Just got another story because it was cool because it's right after 9-11 and no one was in Pakistan. Oh, yeah. Um, so anyway, I just was, you know, excited about the Trango Valley and wanted to go back to this thing and, and had befriended Kelly Cordes. And um, we went back in 2004 and um, 
had basically a serious, you know, they, as they say, there's the fine line between dumbass and dumbass or badass and dumbass. Yeah. And we walked that line very well. And Kelly told the story very well that made us look badass. <laughs> but like, uh, you know, three pitches up the route, I had this gear sling that also had sort of a camelback built into it that Mamut made. And inside, I did not know that where it was attached, like where the gear clipped on the side of you, came in and was had like a rethread that had not been rethreaded. I just never even looked in there. And so like third pitch, the sling comes undone and all of our cams go like down this chimney. And, and you and you keep going up. We keep going up. So we like recover what cams we can. We've lost like a third of the rack. <laughs> we, yeah, that's not, that seems more on the dumbass. Yeah, actually. exactly. <laughs> yeah, like all these things in retrospect. Yeah, like what the hell? <laughs> um, I always found water on all the routes I climbed in the Trango Valley, running and streams, but hadn't really thought through the fact that the whole thing was like this giant ridge, rounded ridge. So we only had one fuel canister. So day two, we ran out of fuel at dinner. So we had no water for the next two days. <laughs> um, yeah, and that was just like, you know. And you still went up. We still went, we wanted to go up. Yeah, we were, I was psyched and motivated and Kelly was too at the time. And um, yeah, and uh you were just in San Diego. Yeah, like, there was, was no going down. In the end of the day, I think. So, if you look back at that, do you think, yeah, it probably would have been go good to have maybe gone down after we dropped part of our rack, or once we realized we weren't getting water, we should have gone down and like retooled, re adjusted our strategy, come back a different, a little more prepared, like, or do you just think like it unfolded the way it needed to? I think. Um... Yeah, maybe now I would make those decisions differently. Um, at the time, you know, like we didn't have like a good weather forecast or anything like that. You know, we were just taking advantage of, and the weather seemed amazing. So it was sort of this, like, you always felt like you're racing against the weather and you mm -hmm. weren't, you didn't know, like, do we have two days? Do we have four? And it never seemed at first, like if those things went wrong, like that we were that stretched it was only really as we crested the ridge and started to traverse horizontally that reversing what we had come up became like really serious because we would have had to climb pitches in reverse and we couldn't, we had big walls on either side of us. So repelling was sort of out of the question to repel off the side. And then it became more serious, but I have to say like in the moment I was not thinking what, it, you know, what are the risks here? I was just thinking, climb up my, I mean, in early twenties, your sense of your own mortality is not all that great. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, um, and I was motivated and excited. And I think sometimes on Alpine rates, you have to find that space, you know, um, at least at the high end, Yeah, not always, sure. but you do have to find that headspace. Yeah. That's a really interesting thought. And I do want to pause for a second. <laughs> you know, you started at $8,000 as a professional climber. I started at $1,500. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know what the, the, the starting salary, so if we can call it that, for, for you know, a, a junior 
pro climber is these days, but it was never really even, it was just very informal. I think with the exception of the North Face, who started with like, you know, the, you know, Alex Lowe and, and Greg Child and, 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 um, you know, there's a, a kind of a, a group, Conrad Anchor, for a while, Kitty Calhoun, Jay Smith. There was kind of a couple of the dream team back then, remember? And like, but, but outside of that, everyone else in the outdoor industry that was doing this kind of supporting of climbers, it was, it was almost seen more as like a, a tithe. Yeah. <laughs> like, we'll just like feed this young sites guys a few breadcrumbs to kind of keep them going because they, help keep us all motivated and they have yeah. big dreams and we just kind of want to be a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really it was like, but that was fully enough for us. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, my goal was never to be a professional climber. It was just to climb full time and figure out how to make that work. Right. Right. Um, and I think that has changed, but that was really, I think the goal of anyone at the time was to right. try to figure out who was, I don't think there was even a term professional climber. No. That's yeah. it was just climb full time. Like yeah. and then that also always meant like that you were planting trees or guiding somebody sometime, you know, like doing other things that mm-hmm. didn't actually mean that you were not having to do a labor outside of yeah. your your climbing pursuits, mm-hmm. your sports pursuit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's really interesting. So let's talk about the mindset of you know, kind of how did you just put it? This, the just go up. Um, I think that I've had this conversation with so many different climbers, and different climbers have different ways of managing that moment. But I think you already alluded to it once about how you could be up on a big route and it can come down to, as we said before, hypothetical 15 feet of climbing or something like that. There's always this sort of key bit. There's always, you know, I think Greg Child called it the, the moment of doubt, or maybe mm-hmm. that was David Roberts, I guess, uh, in his mm-hmm. book, Moments of Doubt. There's always this this place on the route, on the, ex- on the experience, in the experience, where maybe it's just a better idea to go down, but for some reason, you, you're in a certain mindset. Mm-hmm. Talk, talk to me about how you, how you access that, what that means for you, where it is how you found it in the first place. Yeah. I think it's changed a lot through the years. I used to find or be in that space way more often than I am now. And now I kind of reserve it for routes that mean a lot to me for some reason or have some investment level. And most of my climbing feels very safe and not that kind of level of commitment. Um, And I mean, a bit of that was being younger. A bit of it, I think... It's maybe just my childhood and my parents. I had a lot of, like, my parents were very encouraging and I got, had a lot of self-confidence for better or worse. Like, um, you know, my mom would always encourage me to do things. Like, my parents were very much about um, supporting whatever I was passionate about. So if I was passionate about something, if I took the initiative to make it happen, then they would support that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was all through my childhood. Um, so like an example of that would be, you know, I was really into BMX racing as a kid racing bikes and my parents would drive me from like New Hampshire to Pennsylvania to go to a BMX race. But I had to 
call and register myself for the race. I had to look at the map and figure out how we were going to drive there. Like I had to take the initiative to set it all up and make it happen and like tell them what the plan was. And if I did that, then they would support it. Um, and so I think from an early age, I like got a lot of self-confidence that then led into those mo- being able to like believe in myself in those moments and think, you know, it's going to work out. I'll, I'm prepared. I'm ready to try hard. It sounds like, I mean, we're, I'm 10 years older than you are. So, but my parents had similar things. Like I remember, you know, for my family, one of the things we did a lot was backpacking in the wildernesses of Oregon and Idaho and Washington. I would make a calendar for the summer of Mm -hmm. all the trips we were going to do because I had all these backpacking trips I wanted to do. And it was, you know, my dad was working. So I had like, his, you know, his calendar, my mom was a teacher. So she had a lot of the summer off, but mm-hmm. you know, there, my sister might've had activities like, but I would have to take all these variables in and then sort of be like, okay, here's the, here's the trips we can do. We have three days here. We're going to go do this hike. Cause it takes three days. Mm-hmm. Or we have a week here. We're going to do this one kind of stuff. So very, very similar. Mm-hmm. It's a, I, I mean, I think we both do that with our kids today. It's kind of fun yeah. to, to turn the tables, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I'm sure you do that with Hera. Uh-huh. Her. <laughs> yeah. So you just had a lot of confidence and you would just kind of go for it. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. At times, I think that was, you know, was the case and it continues to be the case in moments now. I pick and choose my moments a lot more than I used to, but I think for people that are coming into climbing at a later age where they are past that developmental period, they're mm-hmm. already in their forties or fifties or sixties and they're trying to find the zone, mm-hmm. you know, they, they don't, they don't have that. They can't, they can't plug into that careless, yeah. reckless sort of 20 something unaware of your own mentality, lots of testosterone, mm-hmm. you know, young male yeah just speaking from my experience yeah. not not and, and presumably yours yeah so you know where is that space like does it how do you yeah i mean you 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 found you found it there but where tell me more i don't like how would you describe to somebody that doesn't know where it is or doesn't yeah i mean i think if you're coming into climbing later and you you miss that moment and you're finding that you're struggling with it then you have to spend a lot of time getting those experiences so that you can get into a mode where you're able to make, you know, objective high quality decisions about whether you're just being scared for no good reason or scared because you're actually in a dangerous position. And that just comes with experience and being in those situations and doing the thing a lot. Um, And that's something that, you know, I go climbing with people who don't get to get out as often um, or get to climb as much. I think that that's a real struggle. Like if you're the kind of person who works regularly and only can get away to the mountains a couple of times a year, like it's really just hard to build up that breath. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. And I think that there's a, there's a couple of things that happen that I think are universal. One is there's this doubting of oneself. So especially when you haven't climbed something, then you come down and you're wrecked with doubt. Like you're like, Oh, you know, was I just, you know, was that a bad decision? Should I have gone up? Would it have 
different. You're like all the second guessing and, and there's no right, there's no answer and you can't go back and replay mm-hmm. the hand again and see what would have happened. Right. Like you'll never know, mm-hmm. but yet it's sort of this torturous thing. And you, I've seen, and I myself have been in that space that I'm sure you mm-hmm. have too. And a lot of people come down there in that. And when I see someone like with that now, you know, I really kind of go out of my way to try to tell them like, Hey, this is this, what you're experiencing right now is the real learning. Like it's, you know, you actually want to try to hold on to this feeling and understand it and sit with it and feel it because this is going to happen again. Mm-hmm. And you're going to be in these situations again, if you keep going in the mountains where there is no right or wrong answer, it's only shades of gray and you're going to have to make the best decision you can. And eventually this is going to go away. Mm-hmm. That's what I tell people because eventually you go through that enough and you realize, yeah, there is only the decision I make and that's the only one I can live with and I can't replay it. And I can't do it differently. And I think it's a really great uh, lesson. And I think it's a really great part of the mountain life journey that I've really appreciated is because I think life in general is kind of like that. You don't get to play it a second time. So Mm -hmm. we have so many decisions Mm -hmm. that we face every day that, you know, are irrevocable. Like we can't, go back and change them Mm -hmm. and once you kind of get over that angst of whether was that right or wrong and you could just be like it was that's we've made the decision and we are imperfect and maybe it was wrong but Mm -hmm. maybe it was right Mm -hmm. i think that that is is super valuable for people and i think the other thing piece that i want to ask you about is imposter syndrome like this I think there's a lot of this in climbing and I don't mm-hmm. think people talk about it where people are out there pushing often really hard and trying to pretend like they're not. Hmm. And I think they're doing it because, you know, and I certainly did this. That's why I'm talking about it. You know, you're you're fundamentally insecure about yourself. You're unsure about your own skill set, your own experience level, and you're just sort of trying to, let's say, fake it until you make it and hope nobody notices. Mm. But in climbing, that has different consequences than, like, I don't know, a desk job or, you know, learning, you know, something more academic, right? Like you can faking it until you make it can have real mortal consequences if you don't, mm-hmm. if you, if the if things don't break in your favor. So, you know, is this something that you ever dealt with yourself? Was it ever like when you're in Pakistan and you're 19, was there in your, you know, tri-zip Columbia and your secondhand plastic boots and your 80 liter backpack? Were you like at some point just being like, oh God, I hope nobody notices that I don't know what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. No, at that point, I really didn't think I knew what I was doing, so I felt okay. <laughs> um, or was realizing that I really didn't know what I was doing. I have not felt that imposter syndrome aspect in alpinism, but I have felt it in rock climbing to some degree. Because in rock climbing, I'm not 
like I have to work really hard to be good at rock climbing. I'm not physically gifted at rock climbing. I didn't, when I started climbing, I could do like one pull up. I came to it from the cycling world. We top rope slabs and tuck away. Like I was not one of these kids who like came out of the gym and was climbing 512 off the bat. So it was like a very steady progression. And still to this day to climb at a high level, I have to like work pretty hard at it, climb a lot, train pretty hard. It's not riding a bike for me. So I felt that in rock climbing, like, ooh, do I deserve to be here? Like, am I capable of doing this route? Like, this is over my head or, you know, whatever it is. Um, what do you say to yourself? Um, I mean, I just usually, like, turn into it by working harder when it comes to routes like that. Doing the work. Yeah, just trying to do the work. And then that gives you the confidence yeah. To show up. And it doesn't always work out. There are definitely routes that I put a lot of time and effort into that I haven't done. Mm. Um, but uh, I still kind of like, I think a principle that I've really tried to like guide myself, I can't remember this, um, is a Emerson quote or Thurgoro quote or something is like, uh, being great is not about being better than your fellow man. It's about being better than your former self. And that's kind of the approach I've tried to take to my climbing. And I say that holistically, not just like physically and technically, but also like in relationships with partners and all of that stuff that goes into climbing. Um, and so I let that kind of guide me. So I kind of give myself a pass, you know, if I'm getting worked by a route that I'm doing all the work and trying really, really hard, being smart about it. But I am hypercritical of myself if I don't think I'm doing those things. Mm. Then I will be like, did you really show up and do your stretching every day? Did you really actually like eat right? Did you really actually put the time in in the, in the garage training? Like, and just try to be hypercritical about that and be fair. And like, if I'm doing that stuff, then I can feel okay about it, regardless of the outcome. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. You know, I think that this is, I've said this on this podcast before, but, you know, really one of the things that I love about mountain sports and the reason that I'm so passionate about all mountain sports, but climbing in particular, of course, but is, you know, I really want to emphasize and, you know, bring to the front of people's consciousness and that this is a process and a practice of doing these things that is actually lifelong. It's not, you know, it, and it's, and what I love about that is that, that I don't love, and I know you're a competitive sports fan. Mm -hmm. That's another topic, but like, it, it's not about a winner or a loser. It's just about as you throw or whomever said, mm -hmm it's about being better than your former self and staying in the process and showing up for yourself and doing that 45 minutes of, you know, rolling and stretching that you actually don't want to do, but you know that that's one of your greatest weaknesses as an athlete. So you intellectually know, and then you have to translate that into practice mm -hmm. and that's really hard to do. Yeah. But that is also how you get to the point where, you know, you get to any any significant level not of course the highest levels but any significant mm -hmm. level it's just by 
showing up literally every day and just doing those little trips and drabs. Yeah. And hopefully you do those things long enough, they become habit. Mm -hmm. And then they don't feel as difficult as they once did. Right. Yeah, and that's very true, right? That's that that it just becomes part of your yeah. routine. That's one of the things I've really enjoyed about living in Austria, and one of the things I wanted to pull out of the conversation about your grandfather and your father, and, and your climbing now is how it's it's really a gift when these things are part of our culture, okay. and it's actually just normal. Yeah. Like, you know, the last couple of days I've been hiking with your daughter and, you know, she's a great hiker and we just like kind of cruise along and have, you know, talk about stuff, you know, mm -hmm. what book she's reading or her friendship bracelet project or whatever. And this is completely normal to her. And she doesn't even realize how much of an effect that's going to have on basically her whole life. Like, you know, that that's, that's normal. I mean, mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that she has to hike her whole life or she may not climb. Probably, hopefully she doesn't, yeah, right? right? Like, <laughs> but, you know, she's she has this, and I see this with my kids with like the skiing and just being out in mountains that it's just kind of part of life. And mm -hmm. that's what people do. Mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's good and it's healthy and they see old people, they see young people, the friends go, like it's just, mm -hmm. a, it's just a thing. And it doesn't have to be this like super special, you know, I kind of want to get away from this concept that, that alpinism and mountaineering and, and climbing in general, especially climbing outside is this, you know, it is sacred in some ways, but it shouldn't be exclusive sacred. It should mm -hmm. be inclusive sacred. It should yeah. be, you know, uh, you know, yeah, I just I, this is something that I really want to emphasize in terms of I'm, I'm, I'm not being very subtle here, but I definitely want to impact the narrative as much as we can around this. And I know that you and I share that viewpoint um, and you certainly practice that every day. So, mm -hmm. you know, I haven't been able to have I haven't been able to convince you to drink a beer with me in like six years or something. <laughs> 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 which which brings me to a question that uh Hera wanted me to ask you when did you first become afraid of the sun <laughs> okay so this is a story going back to to trango valley which came up yesterday because we were hiking and you were like all sun hooded up yes sunglasses on. i am terrified of the sun yeah. i hate the sun and, you, and Hera's like daddy <laughs> <laughs> i call it the death orb <laughs> <laughs> could be called the life orb yeah too. that'd be the suppose yeah i'll be climbing the sun if it's like 20 degrees fahrenheit outside um yeah so second trip to trango valley with brian mcmahon the summer we were there post 9 11 you're like 21 or something 21 no one's no one's in the trango valley we saw no one there for we were there for almost eight weeks Wow. Not another party there because no one, everybody thought we were there. We were crazy to go to Pakistan post 9-11. Of course, everybody in Pakistan, as you know, having traveled there was like, why is no one coming? <laughs> what happened, sir? You know? <laughs> but, but that was a real wake up call. Learn something about how media works in the world and stuff then. Right. Um, but anyway, Brian and I were hiking up to this very high camp. We were climbing a spire that was a long way away from base camp. 
and Brian put the sunscreen on in front of our tents, left it on the rock, assuming I would see it. I did not see it. And we started walking up the glacier and I walked for six or eight hours on a sunny glacier and just got the most horrendous sunburn of my life with like blisters all over my face. And of course it stormed when we were up there. So we were like stuck in a bibbler on the glacier for two days. A tiny tent. Tiny, tiny tent um, with this bad hanging stove set up. And during the course of cooking one day, I managed to burn a huge hole in my down jacket. So feathers went all through the tent. And then I wound up with feathers stuck in all these blisters all over my face. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, that was the beginning of my... Is there a picture of this somewhere? I don't know if there is because... God, I would love to see that. Yeah, I I don't know if there is because we were shooting like slides at the time and we would not waste them unless we were climbing, basically. Right, right. So there was very few... Very few pictures. You we went, also... Yeah, like a, the four rolls of film. Yeah, and we also made a terrible mistake on that trip that was another learning moment. You know how you often will get boulders on glaciers that, that sit there on a little pinnacle of ice? Yeah. The glacier basically shades the ice. The ice around the boulder melts because of the solar radiation and it ends up being on this little pedestal of ice. So Brian and I thought, brilliant idea. There was a big boulder. We'll stash our stuff under this boulder. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I can know where this is going. So that it'll stay dry and we don't have to carry our stuff back up to like where we need our crampons. And I stashed some of our rolls of film in this bag kind of unknowingly with the crampons and our ice tools, two weeks of bad weather, we come back and the boulder has rolled onto our shit and the weather's good. And we're like, fuck, no. Like we're looking there, like ice tools sticking out. We spent like three hours with a rock chopping our stuff out, got our stuff and continued. You got stuff out. We got the stuff out. But some of the rolls of film had been damaged because they'd been crushed. Right. So not too many pictures. So actually like a bunch of pictures from that trip have a big like scratch through the slide where the roll of film got smashed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I remember stashing rolls of film because it was like, oh, there's this extra like 20 grams that I don't have to carry back up here. (laughs) Uh (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, amazing, amazing, and uh, and arguably that sunburn, you know, probably saved you from skin cancer because now you're super paranoid of the sk- of the sun, and yeah. you never have had a sunburn since, probably. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll survive unless that one sunburn gets me. Unless that one sunburn. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's so interesting how we. Every climber I know has some story. I mean, not necessarily with the sun or the boulder, but just has those stories of mm-hmm. things that went sideways. Like, yeah, and learn and what you learn from those. And then also how you take that experience into whatever the next climb you do is. Mm-hmm. Another funny story about that is that after um, I climbed that route on Great Trango with Kelly and we went without water for 48 hours, that winter, I was in Patagonia climbing with Bean Bowers and Johnny Cop, and Johnny and I wound up doing the first part of the Fitz Traverse, like the uh, De La S to Point Snow section on that trip. 
And I remember just being like petrified about not having any water and always talking to Johnny, like, we need to stop and get water and I'm going to repel here. Like, and I just like obsessing about needing water because I had been like traumatized from that two days without water. <laughs> yeah. So those, those like intense learning experiences, you know, burned into your mind. And then, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, they're little traumas. Yeah. They're you know? little traumas that yeah. then you are, you know, like, yeah, takes you, a while for those to wear off or to stick yeah, or get scabbed over yeah, right. very deep yeah. enough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, pulling this back forward, you know, to, to France and traveling with your family and, you know, you've, you know, had this, you know, really incredible career as a, as a climber and you have literally you know, you know, when I think of it, you know, you certainly have exemplified that more than anyone else, for sure, in North American climbing, where you've excelled in every discipline possible. And, you know, I don't see any signs of you kind of slowing down or, you know, not that you need to, mm -hmm. but like, what is on your mind as a, you know, 40 something father who's had this amazing career are the, what are the big, you know, you've, you, we all, I think can say that we all think about that. We only have so much time here mm -hmm. and that, what are the things that you would like to get done and what the time you have left and how do you prioritize them? And you don't have to name specific things, but are there things or do you have a, a list in your head or. Yeah. Um, in the short term, and I mean like in the next couple of years, most of the things I'd most like to do are rock climbing related. And that's just because I think that like the reality of father time and the physical component of rock climbing comes into it. And so mm -hmm. there's like some rock climbing goals that I'd like to go after while I still can train hard for them and maybe not necessarily grow physically, but like maintain and take tactical technical approaches to achieving those things. And that also works a little better as a dad and with a family because just rock climbing doesn't have like the, all the variables like alpinism does with weather and time away from home and expense. It's just not as complex that way. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of why I prioritize those things. And I'm hoping that I could do a couple of those things, you know, like, um, I'd like to, I haven't free climbed El Cap in a day. I'd like, I'm going to try to do Corazon sometime in the next year or two mm -hmm. in a day. And that's a, a goal for me. Um, uh, and some local close to home sport climbs that I haven't, they're kind of like a little beyond me. Mm -hmm. um, and then alpinism, I've just sort of like the last handful of years, just kind of like dabbled in it. You know, it's just like try to do a route or two a year feels interesting and rewarding and has that cool like the piece of alpinism that i really love and i have a hard time letting go of is the partnership connection i mean mm -hmm. you and i became friends so you know like we spent so much time together base camp jirshanka getting to know each other like became friends with vince recently like you know guys like brian mcmahon who i've been friends with for decades and yeah. you know those kinds of connections that i don't think you really get very easily in normal life especially not in adult normal life like you know maybe they happen to you in college and things but mm -hmm. not in the same way you just don't those time that time you get with someone and also like 
doing something intense and focused together. You really get to know somebody and who they are in that space. Um, so that's like why I've really wanted to keep alpinism in my life, like to a Mm -hmm. large degree, Mm -hmm. because I crave those experiences and those Mm -hmm. connections and, Mm -hmm. um, it makes it feel worthwhile to me. And I am still inspired by the climbing, but I, I think I've come to recognize that piece of it as being equally important to me. Yeah. I think that's, this is an interesting topic because I, and that's something I've thought about, and we have similar, we've talked about this before, but, you know, is the framework or the structure of alpine climbing necessary, in fact, to have those relationships and develop those relationships on that deeper level? Yeah, I think, I mean, for, I don't know that it is for everyone, but I think for me, it's really useful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe uh, necessary is the wrong word. Yeah. It's too binary, but it's yeah. useful. Yeah, it's really useful and helpful in a way that it's just, I, you know, and I don't know that it's, there is an element of like the intensity of it, I think, that has that and this like shared teamwork aspect to it, like working together a team, which I'm sure other people have in other areas of their life, like professionally, career, other team sports. Um, and I'm sure that's a piece of it, but it's also just a time component. When you go on a trip with somebody, even to a place like Peru, that's only four, three or four weeks, there's so much like hanging out at base camp, just chilling together, getting past your past small talk, like a weekend, right? So it's like, you know, you're just chatting with, you'd be like, you just really get to know someone, I think, yeah, in a yeah. deep way that takes a long time to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's true. And I, I think it's also, for me, the, it's, you're you're only doing one thing, mm-hmm. right? You're going to Jirishanka and you're going to go try to climb Jirishanka. Mm-hmm. You're not also going to work and on Saturday going skiing with your daughter and mm-hmm. on Sunday meeting a friend for a tour. And, you know, like it's a big chunk of time and it's focused on that one thing with a really small group of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And something about those experiences you know, I can certainly say that there's friends like yourself or, you know, Vince or a number of other people where I cannot see them literally for years. And then when I see them again, it's just like, you know, it's that immediate connection. Yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, this is Josh. And mm-hmm. Safe here. I know this person. I really care about yeah. this person. And, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, it's hard to... Daily life is so segmented and fragmented in so many different ways and we all play so many different roles and wear so many different hats especially as we get older that it's it's hard to to stay in the moment with mm-hmm. with one person for any more than an hour or two <laughs> and interrupted by your phone yeah. like and, and i like share this you know i climb with a lot of climbers in various genres like young rock climbers and people in the big wall climbing space or sport climbing well sport climbing space and bouldering like around the front range. I just have a lot of people that I interact with and climb with. And when they ask me about like, why do you go to do Alpine routes? That sounds like miserable and terrible. Like, why would you want to do that? And this is kind of the answer I give them the same thing. And I think that it's something that used to be a part of climbing in general. That's kind of not as much a part of climbing because 
pre-internet, pre-climbing popularity, you only had, you know, like a handful of partners and you were yeah. really connected to those people because like you love to do this thing together and it was sort of this unique, weird subculture thing. Yeah. So you grew those relationships with those people. And I probably came into climbing just at like the tail end of that, like late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. And that's something that I've seen really drift out of climbing in a lot of ways, especially in a really popular place like Boulder, you know, Estes Park where I live. So people just climb with so many different people or will just like show up at the crag and get a belay and they miss out on a lot of those connections and that's not a piece of it for them anymore. Um, I don't know how I like if I, you know, as long as they're getting those connections somewhere else in their lives, but I just think that that's a little bit sad in some ways that that's not so much climbing anymore. I think it's absolutely sad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I agree. You know, and I think, you know, when you look back at things you've done in the past, I think any of us can think back, like we play the highlight reel of our life of the last, I don't know, five, 10, pick a number of years, you know, and think about what you remember, you know, it does tend to be the things that were connected to deep, meaningful relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, there's certainly specific moments for me in my alpine climbing where I can really remember super clearly, I don't know, pitches I've climbed or summits I've been on or, you know, like like those kinds of more like movies. But most of my memories are more about like the people and the interaction and how I felt mm -hmm. while I was on the trip with mm -hmm. those people that I feel supported. Did I feel judged? Did I feel, you know, mm -hmm. like I gave my best Did I feel like mm -hmm. I felt came short. Um, all the, all those things. Um, that's what, that's what I remember about those trips. And it is something really nice about, uh, alpinism where it kind of, and, and one of the things I always loved about alpinism is the traveling. I love traveling mm -hmm. and going, I, we both spent a lot of time in Pakistan. We've talked about it a bunch and how much we both love Pakistan. And we've mm -hmm. had such amazing experiences with the people there. Today happens to be Father's Day. Mm -hmm. And I got a video from Huche, from Rasul, <laughs> telling me happy Father's Day. Like this, <laughs> this guy, I mean, he's, you know, was a like cook on a bunch of expeditions and I have no idea how he knew it was Father's Day or why he thought it he should I mean I haven't had any contact with him in years and then mm -hmm. you know but it was really meaningful like I'm mm -hmm. really connected to the him and other people over there. So it's you know, I think that those that those tra the travel piece, the cultural piece, the getting to know that people everywhere are just people and mm -hmm. they're they're basically good and basically kind and they basically, you know, want you to succeed. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, they're going to look out for themselves too, to a certain extent, but they'll also sometimes be incredibly generous and, and, and selfless uh, as well. And you can really develop relationships. I mean, Rasul probably speaks like 200 words of English max and like, you know, the guy would fall on the sword for me in a heartbeat. I'm sure of it. Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. this is like that kind of guy, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, that's 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 pretty pretty special. You don't get that, you know, sport claim sport climbing in the VRG. Not to put sport climbing in the VRG down by any means. That has that has its own 
beauty uh, mm-hmm. in many ways, but it's just an entirely different experience. And I think that, you know, climbing has definitely drifted away from that. I'd like to see, I think that ultra running has actually developed that in hmm. my version because yeah, there's a ton, there's this whole culture of like the pacers supporting mm-hmm. running aid stations for your friends yeah. taking turns uh and it, it is sort of this cult right mm-hmm. like this underground secret yeah. society that has this pretty high <laughs> entry fee you have mm-hmm. to be able to run like a yeah. <laughs> hundred yeah. miles <laughs> really really hard to do and was really a- painful and all those things that, that experience is shared yeah. yeah and then once you're in that club like you're you know you're a blood brother mm-hmm. or a blood sister you know yeah. like you're you're in deep and i feel like with alpinists it's it's quite similar mm-hmm. in that way mm-hmm. um whereas and it used to be that way i'd say with broader climbing and i do we've talked i do miss how funky and esoteric climbers used to be mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> do yeah. you too i do too for sure like yeah definitely i mean my dad's so all my dad will sold climbing partner that I knew as a child growing up because they were still friends. David Isles was this completely eccentric guy. He was like a math professor at Tufts and he had like this giant head of white hair that went like straight sideways a foot <laughs> <laughs> and would just tell wild, crazy stories. It was like a total nut, nutball. Um, Obviously a highly intelligent, total nutball. Yeah. But what a great character. Right. And there were lots of those people like, the guy who I built fences with out of college, uh, this guy, Rob Cadwell, was like a complete character. He had moved to Thailand for a few years and married this Thai woman who was like 18 years old and moved back to Boulder with her. And, um, you know, that was like mind blowing to me at the time. Totally nice guy, but like completely wild yeah. life story just out there. Just out there making his own yeah. way. And I think those people are there in climbing now, but it's more just like a pie of, you know, climbing's become just like general society, you know, that's not, whereas it's not majority centric. Or yeah, yeah. It used to be, it used to be a real counterculture. Yeah. Climbers were part of the counterculture, literally, yeah. like by definition, mm-hmm. because it was not really even something that was allowed. It certainly wasn't considered to be a sport. Yeah, um, I mean, even even for me, I have a hard time using the word sport and climbing in the same sentence. Like it really, yeah. Know, like it's like, eh, it's not really a sport. Like you know, track and field is a sport. Basketball is a sport. Climbing is a something else. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I think of it as like part art, part sport, and yeah. sometimes those get tuned up more or less depending on what kind of climbing you're doing, yeah. what the experience is. Yeah. yeah. So if if you're if you think of climbing as your art, and this is maybe a good way to to pull some different ideas together that we've talked about, how do you you know how do you see your art? What is your art? What would it look if as a painting? What it would look like? Hmm. Well, that's a hard question. <laughs> I told you I was going to ask a hard yeah, question. Yeah, that's a hard one, Jan. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I have a good answer for that. I don't know if I have a, if I think about... What's a bad answer? 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't know if there's a bad. I just haven't thought about it in that context yet. Um, and maybe that's because I'm not super reflective about my climbing. Still, I'm still. Uh, like... I, I get to challenge that, Josh. But okay. I, I know you think you're not super reflective about your climbing. <laughs> maybe you're I just, am. You're just hiding. Yeah, maybe I'm hiding the. I mean, I guess I. I guess I just uh, am like doing the thing is what inspired like i am passionate about doing the thing and i really do like love it and am driven by having these you know ambitions whatever they are whether they're like a 50 foot sport route or a 5000 foot alpine wall and i'm just kind of like yeah using it as a as a way to sort of like move forward through life and the happy path that i also find something i really like about climbing um there are like aspects of society that i don't love like capitalism and like the way that the u.s functions and chasing things and accumulation of materials and so i like that climbing is purposeful and has goals and you can be ambitious but at the end of the day you're chasing windmills and it's exotic and it doesn't really matter and so it exists outside of a lot of that stuff mm -hmm. and i find that really fulfilling about it so it gives me like purpose some way of moving forward some way of like chasing things without being feeling like a cog in the machine or chasing these things that aren't really important to me you know and that's a bit of it that i really really like i think that's incredibly beautiful yeah you know. yeah i i really love that and i think that's a great answer one of the things that that i think of and that is sort of a maybe a, a little bit in parallel to that for me climbing was always about minimalism to mm -hmm. a large extent and that's one of the things i loved so much about alpinism is how you know it to your point in so much of today's society the point of having more is to have more and in alpinism, the point of, you know, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but in the other direction, like the less, you know, the greater your inherent skill and knowledge and judgment, the less you need and the less you need, the more you can do with that inherent knowledge, experience, skill and judgment. Mm -hmm. And so it fulfills and reinforces those things that are actually really important and valuable, which is, you know, to me, like the, the very human piece, you know, the person mm -hmm. in there thinking and feeling and acting and striving. And, and it, um, or what's the opposite of enforces dis de-enforces, de-emphasizes, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, you know, having the point of have, doing more is having more kind of mentality. And I feel like climbing in particular, but mountain sports in general, really have a lot to teach society about that because I think society is still, and I, I, I think that a lot of the sports that we have today that are called essentially cultural events, I'm, I'm speaking as an American here, you know, they are, actually just giant businesses 
Mm-hmm. And they are very lucrative for a lot of people. And that's actually why they're part of our cultural cultural story. Mm-hmm. And it's not just because of their inherent like beauty or greatness or humanity. And that's reinforcing entirely the wrong things. And no wonder we are where we are in this sort of late-stage capitalism, mm-hmm. as I would call it. And, you know, climbing, uh, you know, it's, it sort of strips all that away, you know, tools that we use for climbing may seem superfluous to, to many people, like a pair of crampons or ice axe or a climbing shoe or a rope. Why do you need this like super specialized, you know, 80 meter piece of nylon that's exactly this diameter and has these characteristics, et cetera, et cetera. And we all geek out about that, but you know, it's a tool and it has a very specific and narrow purpose. And that purpose is to sort of unlock the human that's tied to it. And, you know, that's, that's far more interesting than like, you know, scoring points or winning goals or, you know, one country beating another country. I sort of feel like this whole, you know, culture of, let's say world cups or Olympics or whatever is just so outdated. I'm so tired of like, Oh, we, our medal count is this and their medal count is that therefore we're better than they are. It's like, what a, what a tired story that mm-hmm. is, you know, it's just like I'm so over it. Mm-hmm. And I just so much rather talk about, um, you know, the stories of, of, of the process and finding the goodness and working through the badness and, growing and learning and finding those connections and travel and experiences and people. And I don't know, there's just, there's just so much more than let's say quote unquote winning and losing. Mm -hmm. And I think that you really exemplify that, you know, I've known you for a long time and, you know, you're a little younger than I am, but like we kind of have come up and gone through a lot of our, climbing career together we both you know you're still at patagonia i was at patagonia for Mm -hmm. whatever 20 years and as an athlete ambassador and you know you've always exemplified that and you never really got sort of i would say tempted by the quote-unquote dark side Mm -hmm. it used to be i remember like when (laughs) i was in my late 20s like being quote unquote sponsored was actually considered a bad thing. Like you'd gone to the dark side. Mm -hmm. Like it was not cool. Yeah, you were a sellout. You were a sellout. Mm -hmm. You were a sellout. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Because you were just a paid actor Mm -hmm. and everybody knew it. Yeah. And I've had a little bit of that like punk rock mentality since I was a kid. I mean, I remember in high school, my buddies and I would put duct tape across the brands on our tennis shoes. Because we were like, oh, we don't want to advertise for this company. Why are we advertising for this? For Nike, or yeah, whatever. you know, totally, <laughs> totally so, valid. Yeah, totally valid. And I feel like there is some of that kind of coming back again. I yeah, feel like. I think there's a little bit of that vibe in the climbing world. We, I hope we'll see. Yeah, I just want, I just want what I want for the climbing world too is for it to find a uh, a voice that sort of. I don't think it has to be like inclusive but i think it needs to not be divisive Mm -hmm. if that makes sense i just feel like so much of the national conversation is you know black and white 
without any mm-hmm. kind of room for subtlety. Mm-hmm. And I, I just would like people to start to see the subtlety and see the humanity and things a little bit more. Uh, there's so many examples. That's a whole nother conversation. But I think that, again, the mountains just, and and by extension, nature, I'll say, you know, have so much has so much to sort of teach us about that if we just, you know, sort of stop long enough to think about mm-hmm. it. Yeah, this is something I think about maybe in the context of being a parent. Um, because I feel like we invest so much in our kids and often lead them down these paths to things that can't really be lifelong passions. And I feel so like a just to find something that you're really passionate about. Like, I feel so like so grateful for that to have found something that I really love and am passionate about, but even more so to have it be something that I can participate like as a lifelong pursuit to some degree is really rare. So things like you're talking sure. about like soccer or football or those things like you'll so but kids put like so much time and energy and lives and like, even, even if you are messy, at some point, like that's not, he's probably not going to pick up a soccer ball once he retires, you know, like mm-hmm. he probably doesn't love it in the way he did as a kid or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so yeah, I feel I'm fairly fortunate. I think that that's a really cool thing about mountain sports um, is that they can be totally a lifelong for sure. And then, and there are other things out there in the world like that for sure. Oh yeah. And that's like my, my greatest hope for Hera, my daughter is that she finds something that she really loves and that that thing is something that she can do throughout her life in a way that's fulfilling. You know, I was going to ask you to tell me what the meaning of it all is. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you did, honestly, like in your, mm-hmm. your, you know, it, it is. And, and I, this is exactly what I was essentially hoping you would say, but I didn't know how you were going to say it. I didn't know how I would say it either. It was, you know, that it, that finding this passion, you knowing that it is tilting at windmills, but yet it gives your life direction and, you know, you're not contributing to a system that you, you know, likely don't necessarily believe in mm-hmm. or, you know, are willing to support to a certain level, but not too much. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we all want, you know, to live safe and happy and healthy lives and have, you know, healthcare and schools and, and, and basic things uh, that we would, we would consider, you know, basic to, to life. But, you know, it, there is so much disillusionment out there. Mm-hmm. And as, you know, technology gets better and better. You know, I, you know, I sort of wonder at what point the dis- disillusionment becomes so great that people just, just straight up revolt mm-hmm. somehow. Mm-hmm. And yet I also think that one of the things that I've certainly seen with Uphill Athlete in my own experience, and I think you've seen it, we've talked about it, is post-COVID, how many more people are out in the mountains, biking, running, climbing, doing all those things. And I think part of it is they realized that they were disillusioned, a lot of people, Mm -hmm. and uh, those that weren't fully locked into certain, certain, you know, prior decisions, whether financial or whatever they were, 
you know, had the flexibility to, to spread their wings literally and figuratively yeah. and do things that they've always wanted to do and just be like, yeah, it's maybe it is meaningless, but this is my path. I'm really passionate about it. And this is really incredible to me. And I want to, I want to dive in mm-hmm. like all the way in and, and do it. And I think that that's, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. I really, I really feel like with uphill athlete, that's been, you know, and I keep trying to tempt you into you help me with all of the rock climbing training plans and written much of them. But one of the things that, you know, I really love about this project is that it is a way of kind of guiding people along on certain parts of their journeys, mm-hmm. you know, as they either come come to sport, not sports for the first time or come back to them or work through injuries or work towards goals. Or, and I, I never talk about it like this, mm-hmm. like, you know, the windmills aspect, yeah, as you brought up, but you know, it is, it is really rewarding to just be like, no, kind of in the back of my head, I'm watching people through their process and I'm kind of seeing, cause I've been there mm-hmm. and just sort of seeing like, oh yeah, I, I know exactly what, I know exactly what's going on with you. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you because you can't see it yet, Yeah, but this is where you're at and this is what you need to go through. And that's why you're doing that. And that's okay that you don't know that. Mm-hmm. And it's also perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And that's maybe what it all means. <laughs> Anything else last you'd like to, to, to say? We were we purposely did not talk about training. I didn't really want this to be a, a training talk tonight, but maybe we can do some of those sometime in the future. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you at the beginning of this conversation, I wanted to ask you about that Jirashanka bivy. And you said, bring that back up when we're okay. on, on recording so they can cut it if they want to, whatever. But, <laughs> but so I didn't fully understand what you meant by that, whether you meant that you were not fully tuned into the fact that it was like you were just sort of like laissez-faire with the fact that it was dangerous too much or that you felt scared in that time that it was. Dangerous. I didn't quite see which. Yeah. So seen. just to paint the picture a little bit, we were, you know, we had bad weather. So we attempted a variation basically that was in with, mm-hmm. some, with some ice and stuff that was, was into mixed climbing. And we went up there and tried to kind of put it together. And I think it was like the very end of the trip. We had like two days left. Yeah. It was sort of like a Hail Mary. Didn't really think it was going to happen, but yeah. we hadn't climbed for a while. It was what the hell. Let's yeah. Try. <laughs> and yeah, we, we had a hard time finding a, a place to sleep and that's hard on that, that route. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I remember, I think, didn't, I can't remember exactly how it went down, but we, you pointed out like, hey, we don't want to put the bivy here because, you know, this is a funnel and there's all this rock, there's rock fall coming down. I think there might have even been little bits of rock dribbling down. Mm-hmm. I was really upset with myself that I wasn't scared. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and that I thought like, oh, like that's actually like, how it goes down that you don't survive up here is Mm -hmm. because you, you stop being scared Mm -hmm. and you stop being, and if you're not scared, you're not thinking proactively about what the risks are and how to minimize them Mm -hmm. like you were. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, that's part of partnership too. I mean, we all ebb and flow, right. Mm -hmm. And so it was good that you, you made that. And I remember that night, you know, we were three in a little first light tent 
you and me and Mikey and you know, it was, it was, the weather was just getting worse and worse all night. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, your head was kind of like right under, you know, you know, the end of the tent where the, yeah, it was mm-hmm. just sort of the whole, I was just sort of on pins and needles the whole night. I never mm-hmm. really slept. I was just kind of like, this is, this is, this is not where I want to be. Like, it, mm-hmm. it just, like you know, starting to feel nervous about it, or yeah, then like, I was nervous about uh-huh. it. Then I okay. was then I was nervous about it, and I okay. was scared. And then that next day, like like going down, you know, there was a bunch of new snow on the rock. Oh, it was yeah. hard to find the anchors, and everything got super wet. Mm-hmm. And the ropes are, you know, it's just it's steep, but it's not that steep. So the ropes are like hanging up everywhere. And you have to mm-hmm. throw the ropes off like every ten feet yeah. again, and and I was just like, man, there's like so many ways this can go sideways. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. none of and none of them really seemed like they were worth uh-huh. like what we were yeah. we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I was I kind of I kind of went away from that trip. I didn't know it but that was that's literally like the last time I think I went real alpine climbing. Uh-huh. Yeah. On a big mountain. I mean yeah. And then there were some other experiences that were similar here in the Alps. I told you about one, like, you know, climbing the long German route in winter in the north face of Triglau, which is a route I'd done, you know, when I was 19. And that winter, like, I, my friend Andy and I did it. We got to the top at dark. and But then climbing down, you're just, like, going down this really long, like, I think it's, like, th- you know, 3,000 vertical feet of, like, 50, 55 degree hard snow. Like if you just, and you just couldn't not be totally turned on. And I was just mm-hmm. sort of like, I was like, I don't, I, you know, I, I know I can do this. I know mm-hmm. I have, like, I know I can go into this space, but I just don't know that I still find value here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fair. Um, mm-hmm. And and that was a few of those experiences were just like yeah I've I've just done this so much and I read this book around that time called What Got You Here Won't Get You There mm, okay <laughs> and I think that title uh-huh. kind of sums it up yeah and it was about like trying to learn new skills and stuff and I kind mm. of it kind of got me motivated okay. to start learning new things mm-hmm. and because i would i realized i'd maybe just i thought i was going to do that with alpine mentors remember that project mm-hmm. where i was hopefully going to learn more about myself and about alpinism through trying to mentor others mm-hmm. and then i think there just wasn't a good business model for that to really work uh, and then it was like well I'm, 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 i really want to learn something new i want to experience some new things this is all feeling very repetitive at this point mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so yeah that I kind of, you know, transitioned more into focusing on a athlete. And that's been very engaging and very interesting. And I love it. Cool. Um, I'm learning so much. Nice. So it's really cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So mm-hmm. all works out, but nice. thank you for the chat job. Yeah. It was great chat. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Rate, subscribe and review. And thanks for listening to the uphill athlete podcast. Catch you next time.